The following audio resource is produced and distributed by Mark Inc. Ministries, 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Contact us toll-free at 1-877-MARK-INC. Visit us on the web at markinc.org. When you hear the word autism, what does that say to you? Since I have Asperger's, that's like a mild form, a milder form of autism that it just kind of means of like socially slower to learn, but very creative. I'm usually overflowing with ideas. I always have a notebook with me, drawing or book or reading or my sketchbook. And I just, I constantly have ideas simply because I'm different. doesn't mean that I can't do something impressive or do something to amaze amaze people or to benefit others. It doesn't mean that I'm no good or useless. I think that is, that's what um, I think somebody, a bully, had said to me, something like that. I think if, if I were talking to one of them who had uh, bullied me, I would probably like shock them and maybe um, embarrass them that they'd been so unkind to me. When you hear someone described as being autistic, what comes to mind? A person who has a mental disability? Someone who might have an unusual gift of some sort, perhaps in music, or an incredible ability to memorize volumes of information? It is estimated that 1 in 150 children born have some form of autism. What are the degrees of autism? How does having an autistic child affect a marriage and family? How can the extended family and friends help with an autistic child? What hope is there for a child with autism to live a fulfilling and independent life? What gifts and talents can a child with autism share with those around them and with the church and culture? In this interview, Dr. Chuck Betters and his wife Sharon ask the difficult why questions related to the emotional struggles of having a child with autism. In the studio with Chuck and Sharon are two couples who have autistic children. And we will also hear from a young man who has autism. This interview is a part of our series entitled, Learning to See When the Lights Go Out. And it is entitled, Autistic Spectrum Disorders, Speaking Hope. Here now is Dr. Chuck Batter. We're going to start with an introduction to the people that are in the room. Paul, I'm going to ask you if you would introduce yourself and introduce your wife. My name is Paul Latanzi and my wife Deborah. I am a manager at a large financial institution and I'm a director over an IT organization there. Hi, I'm Debbie and I'm a pediatric occupational therapist and I've worked in children's hospitals and I've worked in the school systems for the last 11 years. Been a stay-at-home mom, stopped working and taking care of things at home for the last few years. How long have you two been married? 18 years 18. in May. And tell us a little bit about your children. Alexander is our oldest. He's 16 and David is 14. When did you first discover that you had the issue of autism to deal with? I had an advantage being in the pediatric world as an occupational therapist because I've worked with everything from head trauma to developmental disabilities to autism. I started to notice some things with Alex as a young toddler, two, three years of age. 
started to notice there were some areas of lacking self-control, which which most people might say, well, that's kind of typical, normal. But from my perspective, I had an advantage being in the medical field. There were some things going on with some what they call stimming within the autistic world. He would kind of roll things back and forth in his hands. All he wanted to do was just play with Legos constantly or study certain things, watch certain TV shows that he very ritualistic. He was he was fixated on the planets, I remember, mm-hmm. when he was like two or three. And he knew every planet in order and all the associated moons. And although that's like, wow, my son can do that, that's all he did. I mean, it's all he would focus on. He would actually almost kind of go into his own little world and, and, and read his books or draw his pictures or whatnot. I didn't want to draw any conclusions because things were still early on. And I wanted to wait until he got into school to really see if there would be any feedback from the teachers. When was the first time you heard the use of the word autism? With Alex, we never thought of autism. There's something called an autistic spectrum. And on the autistic spectrum, you have what is called Asperger syndrome. And that's more or less your high-functioning autism, where you have kids, they just kind of look typical. They have average to above average intelligence. And then you have your other end of the spectrum, where you have your more severe. Uh, A lot of people maybe can relate to the movie Rain Man, maybe the savant autistics. As we continue to go around the room, we have some other folks in the room. I'd like them to introduce themselves as well. Greg, why don't you introduce yourself and your wonderful wife here? My name is Greg Birch, and I am a software engineer, and I'm here with my (laughs) wife, Krista. We've been married for seven years. We have one son, Palmer, who will be three in a couple of weeks. And when did you first, Krista, learn that Palmer was going to be diagnosed with autism? Between the ages of 12 and 15 months is when we really started noticing those same obsessive behaviors, a lot of stimming. He loved to spin Tupperware bowls on the kitchen floor for hours. Total lack of eye contact, lack of communication, language was not developing like we expected it to. So we had him evaluated at Child Development Watch, which is our state's early intervention program, and he was diagnosed at 22 months. Paul and Deb, you've been married longer than Greg and Krista have. And as you look back on the early years in which your son was diagnosed with autism, Paul, what would be your prime advice, your, your first piece of advice that you would give to Greg and Krista here? Don't panic. Don't look for one quick fix answer. It's a journey that you're going to be on and the journey is going to take turns you're going to find out that one diagnosis may fit and one diagnosis may fit better later. Yeah. And, and we went on from diagnosis to diagnosis until we came to Asperger's. So I would just, my advice to you would be is settle. Don't react to the first thing you hear. And you're on a journey. Is there anything you want to say, Greg? When we first got the diagnosis, medically, it came across very dry, and very much like a death sentence. This is who your son is, mm. and there's nothing that can be done about it. It's, it's hopeless. Mm. And, and I don't mean that from a spiritual perspective. Mm. I mean from a, just a dry, medical, worldly perspective. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. hopeless. You're going to have to plan on having him in your home for the remainder of his and or your natural lives. Uh, he'll never get married. He'll never have kids. Mm. And we were literally told some of these things. And from a sheerly medical perspective, that's simply untrue. And 
it's real easy to get caught up in the doctor war mm-hmm. where this expert says that that there's nothing that can be done and if you were to go to anyone else well then you're crazy and and you shouldn't do that and i would encourage people who are listening to not get caught in that trap you should definitely have an open mind about the the treatments and things dietary stuff and and other options that are available don't dismiss them out of hand because the first expert to flash a doctorate or an md tells you otherwise because there are lots of folks with those degrees who disagree on a vast battery of topics Sitting next to me is my wife, Sharon, and Sharon, we've known these two couples for, for quite some time now. What is your impression of what they are experiencing from the perspective of someone who's never had to go through this? We've cried with both couples, and we've laughed with both couples, and uh, we have been a part of the journey. I think, Krista, you're the one that said it was almost a relief to know, okay, mm-hmm. now we know. Mm-hmm. Now we know what we're dealing with, and now we know how we're going to proceed step right. by step. I've been impressed with your passion for getting the best for your child, making sacrifices, mm-hmm. like moving to a state <laughs> that has what you need for your child. I've been impressed with that. And the other thing is, every time we spoke with someone about this interview, that we were going to do this interview, every single person we spoke to said, I know somebody. Mm-hmm. I am so mm-hmm. glad you're going to do this. Mm-hmm. There is such a need. And so really what we're going to be talking about is not as much of the medical side of it, but more the personal journey so that our listeners will hear, I'm not crazy. Th- these are some of the things I've experienced. They're experiencing the same thing. I need hope. As you said, this is not the end. This is the beginning of a journey. And there are other people that are ahead of me. And they're calling back and saying, okay, this is the way we walked, and we invite you to walk the same way. Krista, I remember coming to your home fairly early in this process with Palmer. You were having a very, very difficult time. It was a mess. Uh, (laughs) Well, and and understandably, as you were struggling with some of these things, what, what were your early struggles in this? And maybe even talk a little bit about how many of those struggles are still existent. I really struggled with depression and anxiety. Of course, we got our diagnosis very early on. And honestly, I think I was still struggling with a bit of postpartum depression and and just that feeling of inadequacy as a mom. You know, I was watching my child and not understanding why he wouldn't interact with me. We basically coexisted in the same space. Being a first-time mom... I just felt like, what am I doing? What is wrong with this picture? I struggled with anxiety a lot. My blood pressure would shoot up, and every time Palmer would have one of his tantrums and he was screaming for hours, I just felt like Mm. someone was going to take me away in a white coat. (laughs) Greg, how did her reaction affect the two of you? It's really funny that you should ask that because when we were thinking about what we would say when we were asked different questions about Palmer's situation, the question you just asked her about our early struggles, I probably would have answered very differently. And I think the biggest problem for me wasn't so much responding to my son. I knew that he was different and that he had some difficulties and some issues. I was okay dealing with that. I could interact with him to the best of his ability and maybe not get so upset by responding or seeing what I saw in him. But responding to my wife was very different. And I would come home from work and 
walk into the door and it would be World War III going on in there. And there would be days when Palmer was just screaming and crying uncontrollably. And I would walk in and if his, he was upstairs in his room with the door shut, I knew that my wife was on her last, you know, her last straw, as it were. And we found ourselves in a situation where we fought frustration, I think, more than anything, because I wasn't patient enough with her. I wanted her to be super mom. I felt like no matter what Palmer did, no matter how bad his tantrums were, no matter how little he would interact with her, that she should be able to just deal with it. And I should come home to a happy, peaceful home. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think that I added pressure to my own wife, I think, at times, because I'm feeling the same thing you were early on. I'm like, I don't understand what the deal is here. Why, 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 is, why are things so, so tense? Why are things so out of control? Can't you deal with this? Mm, I have a job I've got to go to. I've got to handle some other things. And I know if I didn't verbalize it, I projected that too. So I really identify with that. When the two of you think about your faith, did you ever get to the point where you kind of shook your fist in his face and said, why did you allow this to happen? What kind of a God are you that you would give us this kind of pain, Greg? I'm not, I'm not sure that I ever reached that point where I shook my fist in God's face, but I definitely found myself sort of incredulous, wondering, what's the plan? I know there's a plan, and I know that Scripture promises that God is in control of the situation, that you know he, he fashioned Palmer to be who he is. But because I can't see the plan, it's sort of a, a source of frustration more than anything. Drives you to faith, which Definitely. at times can be very frustrating. Definitely. Uh, Deb, let me ask you the same question. Did you ever get to the point where you said, Lord, what are you doing here? Absolutely. In fact, I remember coming and sitting in your office, and we both sat in there with you, and I just, I couldn't stop crying. And I remember, it sticks in my mind very clearly, you, you asked me, Debbie, what are you feeling? What is it? What is it? Why are you here? Was more specifically. And I said, I'm just really angry with God. Hmm. I didn't understand it. I was married. I'm starting a family. And here I am. I'm like, just hitting the side of the head again. Mm. Just I felt like I was my life was coming all together. But I think like you, you said, it, it was just a catalyst to drive me to have a greater faith. Debbie, I remember when I first met you, my heart just broke. I didn't know what was going on, but every time I saw you, you were crying. And the transformation is amazing to see mm. where you are today. Mm. I can only imagine what that must have been like in your marriage and in your home. I remember you were, you were saying you felt like you weren't a good mother. What are you doing wrong? That has to impact your relationship to Paul. Yeah, it really did have a strain on our marriage. And I mean, even to this day, we have a teenager with Asperger's who's got raging hormones. <laughs> and that only adds to some of the, the fire a little bit. Earlier on, you know, when you're trying to sort out what's going on, people were saying, well, he's just a boy. And I'm thinking like, am I crazy? You know, mm. I know something's not quite right. Did Paul know something wasn't quite right? Well, to be totally honest, I felt alone from him. I felt really alone from him. I felt like he was not getting it. And he was saying, well, a lot of this is you're just having personality clashes with him. And he was in some form of denial. And it was easier to blame something else or blame someone else than to actually say, there's something going on with my son. There were times when I'm like, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> and I know if I didn't say it, I felt that way. 
I know that there were times in the doctor's office when we were on that journey of this doctor or that doctor, Mm -hmm. Debbie and the doctor would be inches away from coming to some conclusion, and I would interject with, let's not go down that path. I don't think it's that bad. And boy, that would just break my wife's heart, you know, because here I come denying it again and setting things back. And so I I really questioned her judgment or was she overreacting? And I had less issue with my son than I did with how she was reacting. I can completely relate to that, Mm -hmm. too. What do you mean, Greg? I think one of the things that was lost on me for the longest time is the fact that when I would come home, it changed things at home. So when I walk in the door, all of a sudden it's a new picture for our son. He's got a new person to interact with to the extent that he'll interact. But which is more, the person that he's been yelling and screaming at all day, he's not stuck in the house with just that person. Mm -hmm. And so I would come home and he would get better. And so what I saw wasn't what my wife saw all day long. And so I would jump to the conclusion that she is just overreacting. It couldn't possibly be as bad as she's making it out to be. It was, and I just couldn't see it. I was not honest with myself about it. Krista, did you know that that's what he was feeling? Yes. Yeah, it was very frustrating because since I was a stay-at-home mom, I was around all of my friends who were about the same age. We all had kids around the same time. And I just kept saying to Greg, it's because you're not around kids. You don't understand. Normal kids don't act like this. There's something wrong. And it would frustrate me when he would say, well, he's just quirky and you should stop picking on him. You know, leave him alone. He's just Palmer. And What did it take for both couples to get to the point where you kind of crossed the line and committed to each other that you're in this together? When did you get to the point or are you at the point where you are one on dealing with the autism in your children? Well, as far as where we are now, we're, we're definitely on board and we've sorted out a lot of those issues where we maybe weren't on the same page. I'm not exactly sure that I could say there was a watershed moment that brought us to immediately say, okay, we we need to change the way we're doing this and we need to work together. It was more of a process for us. It was a gradual, a gradual thing. Certainly I can remember after we had Palmer's diagnosis that for a while we actually couldn't attend church together. We're in a situation where we couldn't really put Palmer in the nursery because what we were asking of the nursery workers was totally unreasonable. (laughs) So we would take turns and one of us would go to church and the other one would stay home with Palmer and, and back and forth. And I can specifically remember coming up to the nursery one day, the day that I was at church and kind of walking into the nursery where Palmer would have been if we were here as a family. I think the thing that struck me more was the fact that the kids that I saw in the nursery behaved so differently than than what I had seen from my son, even when he was better, quote unquote, better for me when I got home than he was all day with my wife. That struck me. Maybe my wife is, isn't over, I guess, exaggerating. Krista, did you know that he was feeling as though you were over-exaggerating the problem? Oh, yeah. And, and, how, did, <laughs> and how did that make you feel? completely inadequate like I was crazy I felt like it was me and my mom against Greg because Mm -hmm. my mom would make comments Krista this isn't normal something is wrong this is not normal kids don't do this Mm -hmm. so it was hard to be in the same bed with this person who did not believe what you were saying or put stock in what you were saying Mm -hmm. and that I mean that just that tore me down to the Mm -hmm. core For us, it was a little bit different with Asperger's. A lot of times, it's not as easy to diagnose immediately. It's very common to give a lot of other labels like ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder and obsessive compulsive, and that's what we were given initially. 
I said, I know there's something going on. And we went back to the behavioral health department. We met with another doctor, and he was saying, you know, have you really, have you checked into Asperger's? Now, this was around the age of 10. So things had already progressed. There was no chance for early intervention and things like that. We just had to deal with this, oh, wow, now there's an Asperger's addition to this. And once we researched it and talked with the doctor, it made perfect sense. So he's been basically diagnosed with Asperger's ADHD and anxiety, which is very common to have other things go along with it. Is that when Paul sort of said, okay, I, think I get it. I that's exactly and right. I, I remember that meeting with the doctor, and, and, and like Debbie said, this is the age of 10, so there were rockets going off in our house for <laughs> a long time, oh, wow. and there wasn't early intervention. I mean, we were, right. because we weren't agreeing on anything, the doctors weren't agreeing right. on anything, and there was turmoil in the house. When we went home and we read up on it, on Asperger's, it was like, as you said, Krista, it was, it was a relief. Mm-hmm. It, it was we, we a relief. We were reading our son. It was a relief. But definitely when I kind of started to turn the corner and say, you know what, you're right, Debbie, there's an issue here, we've got to come together more, was around second grade. And we were told that when he got into about first and second grade, they said, a lot of this can get covered up as little kids playing. About first or second grade, especially with Asperger's, they said you will start to see them start to diverge away. They start getting into their social cliques and, and circles, and that's when Alex started to And it's exactly what on. we saw, and it was mm-hmm. the teachers who started to call us in. Mm-hmm. And that's when, if you will, the, the light bulb started to go off with me that I need to line up with my wife a little bit more. It is a real thing going on here. If I can just add real quickly, too, that he was in third grade, and 20 days before school ended, and he was asked to leave. That was a devastating year, and then that was a devastating moment for us. And Why that, was he asked to leave? Well, the teacher um, initially thought she could work with him, and they, up to that point, they had done okay with him. But the humming was a distraction in the class. Some of the quirky, awkward movements that he would have. He wasn't like malicious as far as behavior, like being a bad kid or anything. It's just that he was a distraction. And socially, he would say things that were not... The, the conversation may be one thing. His comments were completely out of sync <laughs> um, and just, you know, not connecting so with I, the other. The teacher just had had it and just we got a letter in the mail and, and said, we just have to stop and he'll, he's going to have to finish out the year uh, homeschooling. Let me shift gears here a second with Krista. Again, I remember this evening when we went over to your house. I don't think I ever saw anybody as devastated as you were. And it was just like all of this tension, pressure, pain just seemed to come out of you that night. One of the things I distinctly remember that really troubled you is the reaction of your friends. It was really difficult. Some of our friends didn't know what to say, so they didn't say anything. They just stopped talking to us. And that left Greg and I feeling like we were just mm. abandoned by people that we have been friends with for a long time. Now, those relationships have since gotten a little bit better, but it was also difficult to hear people make comments like, well, you're making a mountain out of a molehill and boys talk later than girls. Don't worry about it. He'll catch up. You know, there were lots of ignorant comments that mm. wounded me. It's critical to have family support. We have been very blessed to have my parents be so involved. They went to the children's hospital with us the day that Palmer was diagnosed. They were there to hear Mm -hmm. it. And they have read all the books that we've read. They've looked at all the websites. They've been actively involved in some of the 
the different things that we're trying with Palmer. They have seen therapy sessions. They keep him overnight. And that's what Debbie was saying. It is very, very important to stay connected in your marriage. If you, if, if you are not on the same page in your marriage and you don't have that time to get away, it is hard to leave your child with someone else when you think nobody else can care for him or he's going to upset someone else. He's going to get on someone's nerves. You just have to get over that. And I think if people offer help, you need to take them up on it. I was walking into the children's hospital where Alex had been going for help for many years. And I walked in and I saw Krista and Greg sitting there that day. They were going to be getting the results. And I was like, what are you guys doing here? I didn't really know them. And I saw the parents. And on the flip side, we hadn't had a lot of family involvement, which was very difficult. But walked in and saw Krista and Greg sitting there. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't usually see many people that I know here in the behavioral health department at the children's hospital. And when she told me what was going on, I was like, wow, okay. And Alex had an appointment, and I saw the parents sitting there. I vaguely remember I talking with you, but I remember intentionally going to the parents and telling the parents mm-hmm. how encouraged I was to see them there and that they needed to be that support. Mm-hmm. They will need you. It was just divine providence mm-hmm. that we were there, walked in it at was. that moment <laughs> before you went in to get the results. I remember one fella coming up to me and telling me how he knew how I felt in losing our son because they just had to put their dog to sleep. Yet my initial reaction was to punch this guy in the nose. (laughs) But then I thought about it and realized that he's simply trying to identify with my pain and this is the only thing he knows how to do. Right. At least he was trying. What kind of comments, Greg, were painful to the two of you? We had one person who was actually working here in the nursery at church and we had to go into the nursery and explain this the situation so they when we were first coming back to church and when Krista told the person that our son had autism the response was wow autism that's so cool oh my oh. so uh, <laughs> did they and, not know what autism was well, or what you know, they, I, they, I, they I thinking guess, rain man or I, something well i think we get that a lot actually that yeah. there's there's a lot of people who their only knowledge of of autism is what it they've is, seen in rain man so when they see man, right? they hear oh. autism and they think savantism mm-hmm. which is actually really rare and mm-hmm. you know less than 10% of cases mm-hmm. do they see that any of that the flip side is that Half the time, people affected with autism won't ever speak. Those kind of misconceptions drive it a lot. We've been told there are worse things that your son could be diagnosed with. Another one that we've been told a lot is, well, we just believe that God blessed you and picked you to have this child because you're capable of handling it. I think, just like with your situation, all of these things that people are saying, they're trying. They really are trying to to try and identify with your pain, to try and say something comforting, and they really don't know what to say or know whether it will hurt you. A lot of the times, those are the kind of remarks that bounce off you initially. And then later on, when you're sitting down having dinner and you're talking and you, re- and you realize, wait a minute, I just realized what that person said and what it means. You realize that that wound is there. And so what would you right. tell people who have a friend or a family member who is struggling and how can they help just don't lose contact with them. Stay stay in their face. Mm. I know the people that have been my best friends are the ones that have stuck with us. They're the mm. ones that call us every week and they ask how Palmer is doing. They're in it with us. Mm. They're sticking it out with us. 
they're not afraid to talk about Palmer right, to right. you. Right. As yep. though Palmer doesn't exist. He does right. exist, and you do need to talk. I'm thinking, Krista, of uh, Job. We always tend to go to Job when we hear about suffering, and I think that's one of the reasons why he's in the scriptures for us. Those friends that came to visit Job sat with him for day after day after day. I mean, they were there. They sat with him. They didn't say a word. They were just there. The problem with, with Job's friends is they opened their mouths. Uh, <laughs> the fact is they, had to, they, had, they felt compelled to start telling him why he was going through mm -hmm. all of this mm -hmm. in some sort of self-righteous way. Did you lose any friends over this? I don't think we've lost them completely. There's definitely, there's a distance between us now. And I remember as soon as we got the diagnosis, I, I suddenly felt like we were on the other side of the fence. Mm. Everybody else was on that side of the fence. We were just separated from everyone. It was never going to be the same. It was always going to be different. Mm. And everybody else on the other side of the fence, they were going to continue on with their lives and things were going to be normal for them. And I felt like everything had been shattered on our side of the fence. One day in particular, you described so poignantly, and that was the day that you put Palmer on a school bus. Last summer, right as soon as he was diagnosed, I was working with the therapist who came into our home, and that was my world. I had suddenly turned into therapy mom. You know, mm. I had to be a specialist in all of mm. these areas, and I had hands-on interaction with his therapies, and suddenly that was just gone, totally mm. gone, and I wasn't allowed to be a part of his successes every day. Instead, mm. I read them on a piece of paper at the end mm. of each day. What did friends do during that time to help you bridge? I had friends dropping gifts off on my front porch. I had friends inviting me out to lunch. I had friends calling me constantly, just saying, I was praying for you today. How are you doing today? Those are the things I'll never forget because that's when I needed people. Paul, tell us a little bit about Alex right now. The one thing about our move was to put Alex in a situation where he would thrive. And that was the real mission I think Debbie and I were on. I'll call it a miracle to find this school geared for children and young adults who are in the Asperger realm. Very specific niche, have been there for 30 years. So Alexander, whenever we had to move him from homeschooling to one school situation or to another, it would always be a honeymoon period where he would last for the first 30, maybe 60 days. Everything's new and exciting. And we were getting these false hopes. And then it would die off. And then the bad messages would come in from the teachers. And then the pain for Debbie to have to deal with that day in and day out whenever she had to pick him up or whatever. In this setting, we finally hit something where the honeymoon didn't end. They really focus and accentuated his gifts, which are in creative writing and art. Alexander, there was one day in particular in our new location where it was pouring rain and the substitute bus driver did not pick him up. And I had to drive into downtown Philly because Alexander made me. He demanded that you take me to school. He did not want to miss it. Mm -hmm. And this was halfway through the school year. That spoke volumes mm -hmm. to me. Alex gave me a drawing. His artistic talent is just incredible. When you see that artistic talent in him, what dream or vision do you have for where he's going as an adult? We've questioned where is he going to go as an adult. We see his passion in the artwork and the filmmaking and the, the creative writing, and we really 
sign him up for a lot of the art classes. He's in an animation school right now on the side right now, and he's making short animated films, little mm. things. We don't know what the future holds for him as far as that, but I'm hoping that that's the gift that God gave him, that he is going to use that creativity, one, for, for the Lord, and two, to just reach other people that are like him as well. He's, he's going to minister to a whole population of people. Mm-hmm. My husband has done a lot of reading regarding famous people mm-hmm. that, that have been suspected to have mm-hmm. Asperger's yeah. and mm-hmm. autism. There was a book that I had read called Diagnosing Jefferson, mm-hmm. and it was written by a father who has an Asperger son, and he's also um, a historian. And he did this analysis of Jefferson, and he, Jefferson's personality traits match with the Asperger template. Hmm. And there's folks like Newton and Einstein who've been very antisocial and yet fixated on something very specific that impacted the whole world. Hmm. And so we see this as a gift from God. We're not to change Alex, but Alex is changing us. Hmm. And watching him grow in those gifts and seeing how the Lord can use those gifts I'm still standing back and waiting to see what is the hand of God doing. We feel like we're, we're kind of even in the early stages of this still. I mean, mm-hmm. he's 16, and in a couple of years he'll be transitioning into college. There is that hope for that, and he'll have people working with him to do that. We feel like he's just beginning to tap into this artistic resource. Greg and Krista, as you're listening, now Palmer is on a completely different plane. Mm-hmm. And so as you're listening, how does that make you feel? as far as comparing the two situations. And then second part of that would be, what blessings could you say to a family that's just getting this diagnosis? Palmer is changing us. Definitely. We feel like our marriage has been strengthened, our faith has been deepened beyond anything we could have imagined. And that's because of this little three-year-old person who can't even talk. He can't even really communicate with us verbally. And just our perspective on life, our perspective on God's creation has totally changed. That's the biggest blessing for me. I come home from work and I walk through the door and, you know, he runs in to greet me and then grabs me and drags me into the other room and mm. then maybe runs off and starts spinning a pencil, you know. Um, it really does It really does change your perspective on things. And I know Palmer has really changed our perspective. Mm. And Krista's right, our marriage is so much better. Mm. And we we're reached the point where when it comes to responding with Palmer and taking care of taking care of business, you know, all the packing of the lunches and things that, that families have to do, we're on the same page. But more importantly, when it comes to what our goals for our family are, where our priorities are, he has totally brought all those things back into focus mm-hmm. for us. How involved are you in Palmer's care? I'm very involved. We have our get up in the morning and do the get ready for the school bus thing that we're both involved with. Then as soon as I get home, I walk through the door and I spend pretty much every waking moment from the time I walk through the door until he goes to bed doing something with him. And then on the weekends, it's pretty much the same. I'm really involved in playing with him and wrestling around on the floor. And some of that stuff I think is is good for a dad to do with his son, especially in a situation where a lot of kids with autism and Palmer's no exception had a lot of early sensory problems. So there was no touching. He, he, he Not only would he not hug us, but if we went to try and touch him or hug him or do the things that parents normally do with their kids, he would resist to the point of screaming and pitching a tantrum. Mm. We kind of took the tack that 
there's only one way to get over that, and that's to make it so commonplace that that he has started to like it, and, and that's where he is now. That's he great. now he'll run over and he'll hug us, and you know oh, he just great. kissed Krista the other day for the oh, first time. Oh wow! You know, and that's, you know that was that's a it's a big deal, but it, it took a lot of hard work to get there, a lot of deliberate work. Detail work, yeah, intentional, mm-hmm. very intentional. Yeah, that's the right word. Yeah, well, very sitting here, just looking at the two of you talk about the first kiss that most of us, all of us, take for granted. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, your kid's going to kiss you, and for the two of you to actually experience what that means in a much deeper way than other folks who do not have to deal with autism face every day—a kiss, mm-hmm. getting on the school bus for the first time, these firsts for you. What's the next first that you're looking for? Probably language that's in context. Palmer hmm. is currently nonverbal. He communicates through the use of picture cards. If he needs to request dinner or juice or whatever, he can go to the refrigerator and he has little magnetic business cards with pictures on them. And he is able to say a few things, but only if we prompt him. So I think the next big thing for me would just be spontaneous language. Mm. He's never said mommy before. I'd, I'd love to hear him say mommy. Mm. Mm. Paul, you have served in uh, spiritual leadership uh, in your church. Obviously, your faith means a lot to you. It means a lot to your family. I believe it's Exodus 4.11 says, Who makes the blind blind and who makes the lame lame? Is it not I, says the Lord? Earlier in this interview, we talked about, I think, some of the friends who said to you, well, God gave you this gift. He's entrusted this to your care. That seemed to be a little bothersome to you, that folks would actually say that. But then how do you contend with the Exodus 4 passage, Paul, where God really lays the responsibility for the autism on himself? I hope this doesn't sound too glib of an answer, but God is sovereign and you can trust him. And I'm convinced that God is completely sovereign over the the forming of Alexander in his mother's womb. Even before the foundations of the earth, I believe God knew Alexander. And this is part of his will for our lives, for Alexander's life. I need to walk in the joy of my salvation because I trust that God knows what he's doing and that I am part of his plan. And Alexander is intricately woven into that plan. Debbie is completely linked into that plan. God doesn't make mistakes. What would you say to someone who would look at you and say, you know what, Paul, that is glib, to say God is sovereign, you can trust him. What kind of a God would do this? I would have to tell them that I love my son. I enjoy Alexander. And I have been blessed and changed by what Alexander has brought into our family. And I see the passion in my son Alexander for Christ and the stands he's taken for Christ even in his own school settings has been an inspiration to me. I would have to tell this person I absolutely see the hand of God moving through my son, through our marriage and that's real to me. It's interesting because we talked over and over we've had a lot more years to reflect on this and our lives could have been totally different if we didn't have Alex or if he wasn't born this way and yet we wouldn't trade it for anything mm-hmm. at this point we would we not already trade feel it. that way too mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and we wouldn't trade it and it would be even more of a loss if we didn't because we see how God loved us so much that he he wanted us through Alex to be changed and to be prepared for something else. And to be tender to be, towards 
others who are suffering. I get a lot of phone calls from the moms. I just found out my child has this, or I have a friend, can you talk with them? And, and again, it's like that verse, you, you know, you're going to be able to comfort others. And that's where we are now. We wouldn't trade it. It's, it's hard. Every day is still hard. One point that I really wanted to get across was the amount of stress that it has on the mother and the effects that it can have. And for me, my health had been affected through a lot of circumstances, but it, this really exacerbated it. It is so vital that moms do get a break, that they have that time away, not to feel guilty, because you do, you do feel guilty. Like I'm, a, I'm leaving my son, or I'm leaving my child, and but yet you really need to get refreshed, whether it's time with other friends, whether it's time alone, time with the Lord just to make sure that you have that support. A lot of the doctors did tell us, make sure that you and your husband are getting away together. Mm -hmm. That is so crucial. And we probably didn't do enough of that Mm -hmm. because I think we lived in fear sometimes thinking that we have to be there for Alex. No one else is going to understand him like us. Mm -hmm. From your perspective as his mother, would you talk about what you have observed in terms of his faith in Jesus Christ? When did you see him gaining an interest in spiritual things? He was in first grade, and they watched a video about salvation at the Christian school that he was attending. And it's pretty abstract about salvation. And the teacher came back to me and said, you know, it's interesting. Most of the kids did not understand the way the cross was and the crucifixion and the blood running down upon the names that were on a piece of paper that were on this cross. And Alex explained it to me in detail exactly what it meant. Mm-hmm. He, under, he had the, an abstract sense to understand that. That was probably the first indication. Mm-hmm. Then over the years, we dealt with a lot of bullying in the schools, which was very common for him. He looked so average, yet was so quirky and different. I know. remember one time he was on the school bus, and he was really trying to share his faith. And some kids were talking about inappropriate things. And he, you know, basically reproved them <laughs> in his way that he understood. And, and they were stunned. They were, they were just dumbfounded. We saw through different interactions with other kids. And it's not so much that he's sitting there reading his Bible every day or memorizing scripture all the time. You know, he's done that. But when push came to shove, he really was solid. Socially, he was stronger in sharing his faith. Hmm than he was in just describing something else that was going on. What impact has Alex had on your other son? I believe that Alex has had twofold, a devastating impact on my other son. Devastating. It's been very hard for David. How old is David? David's 14. He's had to make a lot of sacrifices as well. But yet, in the scheme of things, even in this move that we've made, Mm. we gave up everything everything that we loved, everything that we had. We just have to keep modeling for David and David's understanding more and more Mm. that God's in control Mm. and that David has a real sensitive heart. He's going to be able to have that sensitivity to other people. I can't even imagine, but we see that in him. But it's been very difficult for David, to be totally honest, very difficult. I was actually on a walk last night with David, just David and I. And it was one of those moments where he and I just needed to kind of get some time. And 
we were talking about the move and all the friends that we've lost and, and you know, the friends he's had at church and the neighborhood. And he was sad last night. And the reason of the move was to address issues for Alex. So I talked to David about it. And I said, David, you're as much a part of this journey as Alexander and mom and me. I said, and God, through this, needs you to learn something. And that is to bless his name in the midst of a trial. And that's going to take time to learn to do. But you are going to be stronger than a lot of kids growing up that you know. I don't know why God's doing this, but there's a reason. Don't lose sight of that. And that's what Mm -hmm. we talked about last night. And I think that as much as I, I agree with Debbie, as much as it's hard to see David have to sacrifice certain things that, quote unquote, his other buddies are, you know, able to to enjoy freely. It's not about us. It's about God. And there's a greater world beyond this world and treasures are stored in heaven. And this is the whole family is going to benefit from this understanding and through the pain. It's hard for grownups. So for a 14-year-old to get that is Mm. a supernatural gift Mm. from the Lord. Mm -hmm. Uh, Greg and Krista, you have one child. Are you planning on having other children? And has this affected that decision? That is a scary question. (laughs) Lots of people have asked us that. People who don't even understand autism have come up to us. Uh, People that we don't even know very well have come up to us and said, you have one child with autism. Are you going to stop having kids? Certainly, if I were just going to succumb to fear, I probably wouldn't have any more kids. But... The good news is that I'm totally open to having more kids. And so if God plants that desire in our lives and opens the door for that, then we're going to step through it because of what we've we've been through already. I mean, Krista pretty much said where we are, but I would be lying if I didn't say it, it concerns us. You know, in all honesty, we hear we hear what Paul and Debbie are saying and we're concerned about some of those very questions. In some sense, we can kind of dodge the question for now because we're just so consumed with Palmer and getting him the services that he needs and ministering to him and spending time with him that it's almost as if we don't have time for more kids. Mm -hmm. And yet we could believe that down the road that 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 could change. It's interesting that the raw emotion that's in the room right now that I'm able to see that our, our listeners probably can't see the tears the uncertainty. As Christians, we still have raw emotions. We still have fear. We still grieve. But you're learning to adjust to the new level of normal. What spiritual counsel would you give that mother or that father that's listening to this CD right now who doesn't want to hear it, does not want to talk about faith in Christ or salvation or what would you say to him or what would you say to her? Paul, let's start with you. Well, I'm going to speak to the Father, obviously, and if he wants to exclude anything spiritual in in how he should respond, then I would appeal to him as a father, supplying the needs of your wife, supplying for the needs of your, your child. As a father, I would appeal to you to take on that role with courage and conviction. If your wife is going to go to meetings at school, readjust your schedule and go with her. Let the school board folks see you walk in that room because I can tell you practically, and this is for that father out there, you carry weight. Whether you're spiritual or not, being there as a presence, as a man, you carry weight. And when you walk in that room and all of a sudden they see a father show up with the mother (laughs) and he actually initiates a question or two, all of a sudden that school board, they're they're writing notes, they're sitting up in their chair, they're taking the mom more serious. It's not another 
frazzled mom showing up. Mm-hmm. So I would say that you're that father, you're having a hard time with this. It's difficult. I agree with you. Confusing, frustrating, all those things. I identify with that. But don't lose sight of the fact that people are desperately in need of your leadership. That's the wife and that's the child. What would you say to the man who has not divorced himself from the spiritual dimension of all of this, but he does not know Christ? First of all, I would appeal to him that there is a power from heaven that first will will give you joy and eternal security. And that security will carry over into your ability to minister to your family. And I would just say to that person, you can have the peace that passes all understanding in this world that when you die, you have eternal life with Jesus Christ in heaven. And it doesn't stop there. He will supply your needs supernaturally to help lead your wife, to help minister to your children. You mentioned a verse, peace that passes all understanding. Peace does not necessarily mean the absence of conflict. It's absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's, and joy is, is not necessarily the same as happiness because we can have joy even when we're in critical condition, even when we're facing difficulty or pain or sorrow. There is a joy that transcends the pain and the sorrow. There is a peace that transcends, as the scripture says, all understanding. And that is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Our God has sent his son into this world to bring salvation to lost people. He has known you from the beginning, even before time began. He knew you. He knew the hairs on your head. He knows you by name, and he knows the situation you're going through. Mm. He is a God who has shaped your life to the point where it is right now. And that is what I believe Paul is trying to say when he speaks of a God who is sovereign, which means he doesn't make mistakes. He is always on time. He is never late. He is always perfect in his decisions and in his choices that he makes for us. And you can trust him, even though you're going through a very, very painful time in your life right now dealing with the autism that you might be facing. Greg, let me ask the same question to you. I think that most of the parents in our situation when they have a kid with autism, what they can see in their child is that the child has value. And for for a man who's not interested in the spiritual aspect of this, the fact that you can see that your child has value alone speaks to maybe that spiritual domain that you're kind of avoiding. And Scripture talks about it. I have a passage here from Psalm 139. The psalmist says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I see my son, and I know that all of his days were ordained, were written in God's book Mm -hmm. from the beginning of time. And I see how those days have impacted me and my marriage and my relationship with my wife and my relationship to the people around me and how they've changed my perspective. And I know that God is working, and he's using our son. A lot of times it's tempting to look at our situation and say, woe is me. And and that's okay, because there are times when we really honestly feel woe is me. But at the same time, God is really working. He's really moving in our lives. If you are father of an autistic child, my challenge to you men would be that you do need to understand 
the good news, the gospel mm. of Jesus right. Christ. Mm. You Amen. do need, need to understand that Jesus came to this earth to give his life as a ransom for your sins, mm. for my sins, mm. and yes, even for the sins of your autistic child. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. And until or unless you get to that point of understanding that there's something much deeper than what resources are available to you and what agencies you can go to mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and uh, how you can handle behavioral problems, that there's something much more significant that you as a father need to understand, and that is a communion with your son, your daughter, spiritually. And that can only happen when you place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Mm. Debbie, what would you say to the mother out there who at this point is listening to you and saying, what does faith have to do with any of this? It has everything to do with it, but that's, that's a hard thing to understand if you don't have a relationship with Christ or have some concept of what faith is. Because as a mother, you're just devastated. You're looking for a magic pill. You're looking for a magic cure. You're, look, you're running from doctor to doctor to treatment to various things. There's so many things out there. And you're going to come up empty. And you're going to be left with a void. And, mm. and God can only fill that void. Yeah. And that's, the hard, that's a hard thing. I shook my, my fist in a sense, not physically, but emotionally at God, asking Him why. There are so many doctors and people out there, counselors, like you said, the therapies and all the different things that will help, but you have to have a source of hope mm -hmm. and a source mm -hmm. to go to on a daily, minute-by-minute -minute basis to deal with this, mm -hmm. and, that, and that's only God. Yeah. And mm -hmm. just encourage them to surround themselves with friends, with support systems, with families. Try going to church if you can try to get that support system as much as possible. How important to you was and is the family of Christ in dealing with the painful situation that you have to deal with? A term that uh, Sharon and you have both used, the church for us was a safe place for Alex. One of the painful things is to watch him go out into the world and be rejected and bullied and to see that pain in him. And it just, it just tears your heart. It's an incredible comfort to have teens who he can look up to. Youth groups that he was in, and one in particular, abs he absolutely loved it. They knew him. They knew me. They took the time, those youth leaders, to talk to me, to understand Alex. And they went out of their way to make it a safe place for him. And, and they did it not because they were just good people. They did it because Jesus Christ has impacted their lives and Alex could find safety in Christ through the, this youth group. And that, to me, was a great comfort. You become overprotective. You don't want to let him go out and fail. And yet we felt God saying, go ahead and let him go. He's with mm -hmm. people from some of the youth group. Mm -hmm. I remember something that I presented to the congregation in the context of a sermon, uh, a little mini clip of this autistic mm -hmm. kid that was in high school. And he didn't get to play in the ball games all year long, but the coach put him in. For some reason, he was able to light up three-pointers. <laughs> and what impressed me most was not that he made 30-some points or whatever it was in just a few minutes. What impressed me the most was watching everybody on the sidelines, mm -hmm. watching the people, his teammates, jumping up and down and screaming and yelling. Mm -hmm. and, and then when it was all over, they flooded the court and grab this kid and they were putting his high fives up it, it's something i'll never forget that's what heaven 
is going to be doing when our children go home to be with the Lord. Hebrews 11 tells us that we're surrounded with a great cloud of witnesses. It's those who have gone before us are yelling and screaming. They're, they're coaching us there and enjoying it while we're making our three-pointers here. And you have to wonder what that celebration is going to be like when these children or when we right. enter into that mm -hmm. glorious presence right. of Christ where they have been cheering and coaching and, and hollering and yelling and, and saying it's worth it, it's worth it, it's all true. Stay the course, stay the course. And just to see them lift that little boy on their shoulders and celebrate his victory. Imagine what the creator God of the universe mm. who is waiting, who's yeah, preparing right. this yeah. place and, right. and the finishing touches will be put on it yeah. one day and that he has entrusted into your care the responsibility of directing those children there, mm. ensuring that they will never ever remember a time when they haven't trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord. We have had the opportunity now to listen to two families, two couples, with children at opposite ends of the spectrum, so to speak, one with a very young child, a very early diagnosed child with autism, and another couple with a young teenage man who is going to give us an opportunity, give us some insight into exactly what he goes through. And Paul and Deb Latanzi have a son. His name is Alex, and he's here with us today. And I thought it would be good for us to ask Alex some questions and give you an opportunity to hear from this young man exactly what God's doing in his life and how God is using what he has been diagnosed with to his glory. So let's spend a few minutes uh, talking to young Alex Latanzi. Now, how old are you? Uh, 16. Tell me a little bit about your school. What's going on in the school? Because I've, I've heard a lot of great things about it. But uh, tell me tell me what your school's like right now. My school's great. It's it's really nice. It's really artistic. Um, I'm, I have art every day. And in that, um, I get a lot done. I have a lot of materials to work with. And I've put out a pretty good um, series of artworks. And um, also, it's like the... Teachers there are very um, understanding. They work with me very well, um, and uh, it's probably like the probably the best school I've been to. You say understanding. What do you mean by that? They understand you. Yeah. What What does that mean to you? To me, it just means like um, if if I'm having trouble with something, they'll be able to help me with it. And um, unlike um, some of the other schools I've been to, um, it it wasn't like that. Um, like a, a lot of the teachers weren't able to give attention to. A bunch some of the individual students, but here it's um it's very different. I remember a few years ago you had uh, you had some problems in school. You had some folks who bullied you. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? What was that like? Yeah, that was difficult for me. It was it was um about two years ago. That was probably like um probably the worst. I was probably just like very different. I didn't really um act like socially normal as they would want me to um i so um i'd be like ridiculed a lot and um and just also some of it was just because um also i was a christian being that way also um caused them to dislike me and when you took your stand for christ how did you do that if someone was making fun of christ and christians and i would usually take a stand and 
not let them continue doing that. And they would come back at you? Yes, yeah. And how did that make you feel when they would come back at you? I mean, a lot of times I really didn't know what to say. I would feel embarrassed sometimes Mm -hmm. or just ashamed that I wasn't able to really defend as well as I wanted to. But um, after that school year, I I was better at uh, social situations and learned how to uh, speak. Because um, there's a verse I uh, I'd memorized, um, John one nineteen, James one nineteen, James, James one nineteen. Yeah, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Mm-hmm. Has that worked for you? Um, yes, actually, I've I've had to work with like because if someone like has a disagreeing opinion, I I would usually um, conflicting with their opinion, and and I w- and I have to um, learn how to you know control my mouth a lot mm-hmm. or just. But it's improved much more over the two years, um, and I've for that I've gotten a lot more of friends easier, and things have been going much better in school. How did you become a Christian? Tell me about that. It was just a very um, uneventful affair. I mean, not that becoming a Christian isn't eventful, but I think I was in Pennsylvania at my uh, grandfather's house, and I was just sitting on the porch, and... And I think I was eight years old, and um, I think my dad uh, was talking to me about that whole thing. Um, and I basically um, decided to just pray. And um, and since then, I've had a real um, passion for the Lord and um, to learn about Him and to, to uh, defend um, Him. You're kind of uh, enamored with Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer used to have young people from all over the world that would go to his uh, his facility in Labrie, Switzerland. They would sit really with him and discuss with him philosophy of life and conflicting philosophies that are out there. And so you have chosen one of the most brilliant minds of, of the modern era. You have a book that I read when uh, I first started out in ministry, which was How Then Shall We Live by Francis Schaeffer. What is it in that book that really, really gets you going? There's just... So much um, truth, and I feel like in my school, it's very college atmosphere. There's a lot of different philosophies going around, and previous school year, I was able to really defend my faith better, but I wanted to find the book so I could read more on it and know how to really um, tell people the truth and give out good points. You said earlier that you are perceived by some as different. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you mean by that? Different kind of changed over the years um two years ago and i was different in the sense that um i'd been homeschooled for many years so i wasn't really used to dealing with um a lot of different kids so i wasn't that great at um dealing with situations socially yes Mm -hmm. and uh and it's just kind of i'm just kind of different um i i just like hum a lot make noises you know sometimes but and other times I'm just kind of like I, I'm I may be oblivious to like um person's feelings but that's it's, it's rare or I'm just or I might really just not even know sometimes. Mm. When you hear the word autism, what does that say to you? Since I have Asperger's, that's like a mild form a milder form of autism um that it just kind of means of like like um socially slower to learn but um very, like very creative and um because i'm i'm usually overflowing with ideas i always i almost always have a notebook with me um drawing or book or reading or my sketchbook and artwork and and um 
I just, I constantly have ideas. If you had an opportunity to sit across the table from somebody who is 12, 13, 14 years old and has whatever form of autism, what advice would you give them? I would say to them, um, and also um, another verse I'd memorized, um, uh, Philippians 4, 13. Mm, That's a good verse. Um, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that really helped me, um, even though, like, I may be different. um, You know, I prayed to God a lot, prayed for the people who had made fun of me, or I just also prayed for myself that I'd be able to fit in. Not even that sometimes, just to to pray that um, God would help um, me through the situation. Mm. And um, that really helped because um, that verse, um, I memorized um, that verse, and I think part of that chapter, um, or I I read it a lot um, when I was at a camp in Princeton, University. It was a uh, it was an all week camp, and I've never been away from home for that long before. So it was hard for me, and so um, I really learned to trust God over that week. You're 16, right? Mm-hmm. What would you want your life to look like when you're 26 years old? Probably to be some to do, to be doing something in um in art, just doing some nice artwork, um, doing something with animation or film, because I have. I have so many ideas that since I already go to an animation school that I feel like if um, I work hard enough over the years, um, I can I can get these accomplished and um, maybe maybe um, go on to bigger things. I want to have a very mature walk with Christ, and um, I think that um, I'm starting to do that more now more than often because um, I've taken an interest in a lot of um, things about the faith and. Um, I've been reading my Bible a lot. Let's let's just suppose for a moment that uh, there are parents who have children with whatever form of autism. What advice would you want to give to those parents concerning their children? I would say just keep trusting in the Lord and don't give up and and just trust that he'll see he'll see um he'll see you through this. What would you like to say to your own parents? I'm gl- I'm very extremely grateful for everything they've done for me and that they haven't given up and they've sacrificed for me and um that they just have done so much already and uh I'm very grateful for that. How important is your dad in your life right now? It's very important. He um gives me a lot of good advice and I can talk to him about everything and he just is a really good mentor. He's good at keeping me keeping me reading the Bible and um, having quiet times in the morning. and um, Keeps you accountable. Mm-hmm. How about your mom? She, she's also um, good at just, um, just being loving. And, and I can talk to her about lots of things. Like my father gives me insight on certain things um, in a certain way, and my mother gives insight in a certain way as well. You have other interests in your life at this point that other people have as well that would incite you a little bit to to achieve other things what what like what drawing and um writing and as well just listening to music as also i love classical um it's mm. it's very stimulating to the imagination bach is my favorite composer what kind of music don't you like oh gosh um there's a lot but uh just to name a couple um rap death metal screamo stuff <laughs> Um, and just a lot of contemporary stuff, but that's just, I'm, 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 I like a lot of old stuff. That's just, that's just how I am. 
So you like classical music, yeah. Bach, Bach in particular. Alex, does your mind ever take a rest? Seldom. Um, a, a lot of times, like various small details in a room or just walking or just if I'm driving down the street, small details can inspire me in, for, for something in some way. I just like instantly like want to write it down or something. But um, if I'm with friends and something, um, I'm usually, that usually takes my mind off things unless I all of a sudden I see something that inspires me. But it's usually, I usually enjoy, um, that, that, us that can usually take a break to enjoying. I just, does music help friend. you with that? A music take a break or does it stimulate yeah, you more? It just, yeah, more stimulation music, but I enjoy listening to it. Mm -hmm. And I don't really consider it um, annoying or hard work to have my mind active all the time. Suppose I'm this bully sitting in front of you. Suppose I'm this guy that pushed you around or made fun of you, and you had an opportunity to sit down and talk to that person. What would you say to me about how my behavior makes you feel? Well, I would say behavior really makes me feel less important, even though I know I'm not. And simply because I'm different doesn't mean that I can't do something impressive or do something to amaze amaze people or to benefit others it doesn't mean that i'm no good or useless i think that is that's what um i think somebody a bully had said to me something like that i think if if i were talking to one of them who would who had uh, bullied me i would probably like shock them and maybe um embarrass them that they'd they'd um been so unkind to me. Well, Alex, thank you for being so honest with us. Thank you for coming forward and mm -hmm. saying, okay, let me share my thoughts on this very special resource. And so I want to commend you for it. I'd like to ask you if you would pray for the people that are going to hear this CD. Maybe you could just close our time here in prayer. Would you be willing to do that? Sure. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, um, for this opportunity to help others out there. Um, thank you for giving me um, the uh, wisdom to give others hope, to just help families um, with people like me um, who've had similar problems. And I just pray um, that you would help them to be encouraged by this. And I pray that you would help them to persevere through you just pray that these kids would always remember you in the future and just guide them as you've guided me. Amen. Amen. Great job. <laughs> Thanks. Great job. If you would like to obtain additional resources which address the difficult why questions of life from a biblical perspective, Chuck and Sharon Betters and Mark Inc. Ministries have produced other in-depth interviews in the Learning to See When the Lights Go Out series. Topics include dying with dignity, struggling with breast cancer, coping with the loss of a loved one, dealing with terminal illness, living with alcoholism, and the struggles of being a first responder to real-life crisis. Any or all of these are available by visiting us online at www.markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C dot O-R-G. Or you may contact us by writing to Chuck and Sharon Betters, K. 
care of Mark Inc. Ministries, 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Call us toll free at 1-877-MARK-INC. That's 1-877-M-A-R-K-I-N-C.